Hi, I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg, and we're the co-founders of The Skim. Welcome to our podcast, Skimmed from the Couch. On every episode, we invite smart, inspiring, successful women to chat candidly about what it takes to get to the top, and then what it's like when you actually get there. So this is a podcast about the real stuff, the crappy days, the bad advice, the first big career win, and the people who are there for the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. We started the skim from a couch, and we have only one rule on this one, no BS. Join us in welcoming Katrina Lake to the couch. Wow. We are amazed by Katrina. She went to school to be a doctor, but turned to economics instead. Katrina ended up working in venture capital after school, and after watching other founders pitch their companies to investors, she decided to start her own, Stitch Fix. The online styling service was unofficially started in 2010 while she was at Harvard Business School. Flash forward a few years. When Stitch Fix IPO'd, Katrina became the youngest woman ever to take a company public. Amazing. And it was pretty successful. Today, it's a multi-billion dollar company. Congratulations, Katrina. And we'll say congratulations again because she also announced in June that she's pregnant with her second son. Yes, we know yes. that. Okay. Uh, so welcome. Thank, Thank you. you so Thank much you for, for having me. Um, we are so excited. I can't say that enough. Yes. Uh, you've been someone that we haven't had the pleasure to meet before and has been on the like, top of our list of like, who can introduce us? So this is very exciting. Um, I just want to start back. You you changed your career path. Like what made you do that? And and how do you think that um, whatever drove you to do that affected who you are as an entrepreneur? You know, I grew up in a very, um, like, I don't know, not super entrepreneurial, not super capitalist businessy environment. Like my dad was a doctor in the university system and my mom was a public school teacher. <clears throat> and so kind of like what I knew were those examples. And so growing up, I had wanted to be a doctor. I um, loved, you know, I kind of thought what my dad did was cool and respected it. And um, and as I went through school, I think I got exposed to a lot more other things and exposed to other career paths. And um, and ultimately, the I mean, the reason I decided I didn't want to be a doctor was, um, I mean, somewhat shallow, I guess, of like I was spending time volunteering in a hospital and I was like this just doesn't feel like the day-to-day work environment that's right for me and I just can't imagine spending nine to five or if you're a doctor like seven to seven or whatever that would be (laughs) all the time time in a hospital in scrubs it just like just didn't feel right and so um, you know I had also I'd kind of fallen in love with economics taking um, a lot of those courses in school and so um, that led me to um, a consulting path where I could learn um, just more about business and be able to see a lot of different types of businesses um, and so you know that that was kind of how I stumbled into like not being a doctor and then um, my path to entrepreneurship was really just as I was in consulting I loved retail I was like this is a category where people spend billions and billions of dollars and people are super thoughtful like every day you're thoughtfully deciding what you're gonna wear and thoughtfully deciding what you're gonna buy um, and I felt like there was a huge opportunity to modernize it and bring technology to it. And so um, my original thesis was just, I just want to be like wherever innovation is happening. Um, and I just want to join the company that's going to be the future. And um, as I guess, as you guys talked about in the intro, I um, worked at a venture capital firm and thought, well, this would be a way that I could join the future and ultimately didn't see anybody that was really doing what I thought would be the future. But on the flip side, like got all this exposure to people who 
kind of looked just like me and hadn't started companies before and hadn't done anything relevant really before and you know were able to start their own things and so I realized that like if I wanted to be working at a company that was the future then I could start it myself. Did you because when you talk about that journey like you obviously had this drive to like be a part of something do you feel like you obviously became a visionary um and and also you were able to operate it but do you feel like you were always someone that had vision or were you the doer and and discovered the vision like which came first um, I don't, I've always liked doing both. I mean, when I was in consulting, I remember um, we did this project where it was like, think about what the future of retail is going to look like. And it was, um, it was like before the iPhone. And, um, and I had this idea of like, why do you, you know, why as a customer, do you have to walk in and sort through all these clothes? Like, why couldn't you just, you know, scan, I don't know, type in your information and um, have somebody go pull things for you. And it could be like a beautiful museum where you could just see outfits, merchandise, and you could I just like, like wave a wand in front. Yeah, exactly. It'd be like more fun to go to. And people looked at me like I had like seven heads. Like, yeah. you know, I think I always had kind of big ideas around how things should be different. Um, and um, so, you know, I think I, I was always trying to think of like what a better way would be. But, you know, the flip side is, is like, I, I love the execution of businesses. I love love getting in the weeds and, um, you know, kind of like love really, like I love being in Excel. Like, you know, I just love kind of the nuts and bolts of it also. And so um, it was a good marriage. We frequently wish we loved being in Excel. That is not, <laughs> that is not our I'm not literally a sentence. Like I actually yeah. didn't realize that you were saying Excel, like Excel, Excel. I was thinking like the VC Excel. You've been doing uh, this because, for too long. Well, yeah. not even that because I, it's a sentence I've never even said before. So I couldn't imagine <laughs> someone saying. To be clear, I'm not very good at Excel anymore. But when I first started, I'm like, the, the, my team does not allow me to spend time in Excel anymore. But that's, a, that's um, probably a good thing. It is It is actually a good yeah. thing, mostly for the business. Yeah. But. <laughs> So you're at you're at a VC. You're like, okay, maybe I'll see a company that I'll want to join or I'll get an idea. And that doesn't happen. And you decide to go to business school. Why did you decide to go to business school? We get this question all the time from people, as I'm sure you do too. Like, was that something that you felt you needed to do? Did you need that degree? And was it helpful? Um, so for me, you know, I had a very different reason to go and I like I had these ideas around how retail could be different and I did think I wanted to start a company, um, but I was not, you know, like I remember when I left my job, my consulting job after two years, my dad was like, it's going to be so bad for your resume. You've only been there for two years. You're going to look like a complete flake. And like my dad's worked at like basically two places his whole life total, right? And so um, it, it was just like not, uh, you know, I was never going to be able to feel comfortable being like, I'm just going to quit my job and, you know, take out a bank loan and like sit in a garage and start a company. Like if I was going to start something that was way too risky of a way to do it. Um, and so I saw business school as a way where I could kind of buy two years where, you know, my goal by the end of business school was to be, um, to have a company off the ground, to have venture backing, to be paying myself a salary, to be paying down my student loans and like, if I was able to do that, then I was comfortable with kind of a risky entrepreneurship path. Um, but if I wasn't able to do that, then I felt like, well, great, I'll have this MBA from this great school and I can go work, you know, at any number of amazing startups. And so I saw it as more of like a way to buy time, I think, to be able to start something. If someone came to you today and was like, should I go to business 
school? What do you say? It depends on the reason, honestly. Like, I don't think the MBA itself, like the stamp of an MBA, I don't know how much it really mattered. You know, I think the network, um, I went to business school at Harvard, and so, you know, it has a big, vast network. And, um, you know, certainly it's been helpful along the way, but it hasn't been mission critical. And, um, you know, the classes are interesting and stimulating, but like, you know, it's not like you learn something there that is imperative in terms of starting a company. So none of it is necessary. And I think there's lots of different ways to be successful. For me, it definitely was the right path because it really gave me the time and space to kind of start the company and do it in a way that was successful and right for me. Do you you consider yourself a risk taker? Like, do you consider yourself someone that is risky? I guess I do now, but, you know, I would say most of my life I didn't. And I think it's part of the reason that, you know, when I was 10 years old, I didn't imagine that I would be an entrepreneur someday. Um, And so, you know, I think now that I can be a little more objective about it and also I can see like what I've actually done, like I guess you could argue that I am. But but I think I'm both very rational and, you know, kind of take risks. And I think I take reasonable, rational risks. So I want to actually dig into those two things. So one... um, you're the unique hybrid of someone who's been on the venture side and seen the good and the bad of, of women in tech in that world and then moved over to the entrepreneur and founder side. You know how rare it is what you've done. We know how rare it is of what you've done. Do you, does that resonate with you? Like, do you, do you think about that? No pressure. <laughs> um, I, you know, now I'm much more aware of it. Um, it is funny, like, even when I was, when you know I was on the V and to be clear when I was on the VC side I was like not an investor I was like an analyst that put together memos <laughs> but I still got to meet many many entrepreneurs um, and um, you know I I got to meet some women, not a ton. And, um, you know, I remember when I was writing my business school application essays, um, like I already knew I had a lot of respect for Meg Whitman. And then I remember like spending hours and hours making a spreadsheet and like looking for other women in tech that maybe I wanted to be like. And so, you know, I was definitely aware of just, you know, kind of the lack of representation. Um, But I would say that like until recently, I was very kind of averse to that label of like women in tech and like I feel like Sometimes people would be like, oh, we want to, you know, make a list of like the most important people in tech and then another list of like yeah. the women in tech. And, you know, I was like, I want to be on the first list, yeah. not the second list. And so, um, you know, that I think those things used to drive me crazy. And then now I actually realized that, um, you know, so much of why I didn't necessarily see this as a career path for me, so much of why, um, you know, it was hard to Google around to try to find other people like Meg Whitman. Like, you know, so much of that is because of the lack of representation and the lack of um, people to like to see. And so, you know, now I think I feel really proud that I get to be part of that and what people see and, um, you know, hopefully opening up this lens of possibility for people as they're thinking about, um, you know, what careers would be good for them. So you, like, just looking back, because I think we spent a lot of time, we we used to Google and come up with our list of, of women. And then over the past six years since we started the company, we've been able to meet a lot of them and try to keep adding to the list. And it's great how many female entrepreneurs are, are joining it and starting companies, but it's still a small list of the women who have gotten to where you are. Um, you've started a company that IPO'd, you've gotten married and have are about to have your second kid. How the hell did you do that? Like, I really, I don't even know how to ask that in a better way. I'm just amazed. Like, and you seem like a sane person. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's, you know, it is a crazy thing. Like when you, and you guys have been doing this for six years, we've been doing this for seven and a half. Like you, like, you know, you go through all these life stages and your life continues. And, um, you know, it is crazy to look back and think how much things have changed over that time period. But um, I think there's a, it's really around the people that I am lucky to be surrounded by. And so firstly, it's the team. Um, I have people on my team who've been with me for six years. Um, my COO was the CEO of walmart.com before he joined us. And he was like, you know, the fifth or sixth person to join. And, um, and you know, he had seen so much scale and, you know, and knew so much more than I did. And so I got to learn so much from him and scale with him. And, um, you know, that, that definitely, I think, allowed me to be able to, um, you know, not always be caught in the weeds and doing crazy stupid things at every step and to be able to um, level up and scale myself Um, and then also I think you know just the support network of friends and family and um, and you know thinking about the kids and whatever thing is definitely you know to be able to have um, like a husband who is going to be you know 50 50 if not more sometimes like you know I travel more than he does and so he's doing breakfasts and dinners um, with my son more than I am and um, and you know I think to be able to have somebody um, in him and also I think in my you know broader network that um, that is really supportive of what I'm doing and also supportive of um, you know there's going to be times when I can be there and times when I can't and um, you know helping and in, in being that support network um, but you know I mean I don't know like it just kind of it happens and I think for me it's always been important to be able to um, prioritize not just you know my work and I love my work but I think also to be able to feel like I'm a whole person and I'm a whole self and you know I'm not going to be happy and and you know kind of my best like the best person I can be at work if um, if I don't feel like I'm able to do the things that I love in my life which is like you know spend time with friends and family and so you know that's been a, I think a good forcing function um, but what, you know, what do you do to like take care of yourself like when, like, I mean, like, is it, do you have like a, a workout thing that you do? Do you read a book? Do you take a bath? Like, what is the thing that you're like, okay, this is how I'm going to regain my sanity on a hard day? Um, it used to be running. Like I used to do a long run. Um, honestly, like since I've been pregnant, I've done like no working out this time. The first time I worked out <laughs> this time, I've just not. <laughs> um, been busy. Um, and I also cook a lot. And so I think cooking for me, like I cook a lot, a lot of, you know, maybe like I, half the nights I'm at home I'm cooking at home and um, for me that's a way like it's very hard to be distracted and do something else while you're cooking so it's like a forcing function to um, kind of clear your mind and focus on something else what um, how does your husband or or your your team or friends know that you've had a bad day how do you show stress you know I think I just probably get more like quiet and focused and you know I think it's like it can be overwhelming to feel like I've got all of these things to do and um, and so you know I think my initial reaction to it is more just like how can I try to get through as much as I can and um, you know so I'm probably more just like a little removed and quiet. I read when we were prepping for this um, that you took a full 16-week maternity leave with your son and you're planning to do it with this one and I want to talk about that because I think it's something that um, a lot of young women and women starting to have families think about um, like do I take it and they're also making decisions around places that have you know family care uh leave that they feel like will support them did you was that an easy decision for you to make was it were you really able to take 16 weeks yeah i think well so um 
I mean, firstly, when I like when I started the company, I had the lens of both like I want to start a company that is the future of retail, but I also had the lens of like I want to start a company that you know is the future of what working at a company looks like. And um, I, you know, I'd had many jobs before I had this one, and I wanted this to be a job that I would want to work at for a really long time, um, you know, as CEO. But also, like if I was going to be a more junior person, that this would be a place that I would love to be. Um, so that really colored kind of you know. How how I thought about, um, you know, what, like what the culture of the company is going to be in the first place, um, and so for the leave, we've that 16 weeks is the is the policy that we have for a primary caretaker, and you know w- what we're saying by having that time available to our employees is like this is an important time to spend with your family and bond with your baby, and um, you know what I and if I don't take that, then I'm not actually kind of signaling that it's important, even though we as a company are. Um, so I thought it was really important that um, that you know I, I do my best to take that leave. And so I, I was mostly, I think I was almost entirely out of the office for 16 weeks. Um, you know, admittedly, there's still a few things that really only I can do. I still talk to board members. I still, um, you know, hi, kind of hiring and firing decisions or some things I was still involved in. So, you know, it's not like I was completely radio silent for 16 weeks, but, you know, I, I didn't have a nanny I really was like the primary caretaker of like my baby for those first 16 weeks and um, you know there's meetings I had a meeting with Bill Gurley who's one of our investors who's like six foot seven <laughs> and, um, and I had him come meet me he was like can you do lunch I'm like sure but like my son is gonna come and so like I brought my baby and he and I were like had lunch at this kind of like mom cafe it was full <laughs> of moms and there are these tiny little stools that you sit on and poor oh Bill God. is like six seven like hunched over this stool and like holding my baby and I took (laughs) pictures of him and so you know you kind of make it work but um you know so I wasn't completely absent but like I was I had a team that was able to support me taking a leave and I was totally not in the operational day-to-day but that being said you know I think there's all kinds of flavors of the way women do this and so you know I took the leave it doesn't mean that I think everybody should take leaves like that I think you know there's times and places for different things and you know it's it's like for example if I had a baby when we were in the really early days where we were packing fixes every day like I don't think I probably could have taken or would have felt comfortable taking a 16-week leave. And so, you know, I think it was right for me and right for me in that point in time. But I also, you know, I try to not judge, I think, because I think there's lots of women that want to make different choices of how they're going to balance time with their family and work. And, um, you know, there's just different circumstances. Danielle, I have a confession. What? I haven't cooked anything in months because I'm too hot in my kitchen to cook. (laughs) It's really hot. And even with the air conditioning, it's like the thought of standing over an oven and making it hotter is is not appealing. Also, I have a confession. What? I'm not a morning person. It's not a confession. I know. Uh, But you know what what has been helping me with it? Both of these things? What? Daily Harvest. What is it? So Daily Harvest is a subscription service that makes eating healthy quick and easy. You literally need a blender. Sounds like it's going to be gross. No, it's actually really good. Um, it's frozen, but but it's good. Gross? And it's, no, it's not gross. It's perfectly portioned. Literally, all you have to do is add water or milk. You could add oat milk. That's a thing now. Or mm. coconut milk. And you blend them up and... 
that's it. And they are actually really good. It's not just breakfast. It's also like they have soups. They have stuff with cacao in it. You would really like that. I literally don't know what you're saying. It's basically healthy chocolate. Sold. Yes. All right, guys, go to daily-harvest.com, enter promo code SKIM to get three cups free in your very first box. That is promo code SKIM for three free Daily Harvest cups at daily-harvest.com. Again, daily-harvest.com. Try it out. When you think about what, like the journey of what you've built and and like the hustle that went into it, what is the image that comes to mind? Of, of what are you doing? <laughs> um, I mean, it's been so different every year. Um, it is really, it, it is really fun to think about like those first couple years were truly just like what we did was insane. Like we had, we always believed that technology would be a big part of the vision. But when, you know, for the first year, we were basically packing fixes out of our office every single Monday. It didn't matter if you and were- And you were packing it. Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. Every Monday, it didn't matter if you were an inventory planner or you were me, you were like showing up in, you know, sweatpants and you were going to be on the floor, steaming clothes, folding clothes, taping boxes shop- shot and getting fixes out the door. And on Tuesdays, we all resumed our day jobs. And and, like that's how we operated for I think almost a year in those early days and so like those times like my job was like okay if the printer breaks like someone has to go to Office Depot and buy a printer like that was like the most critical part of my job and then now it's just a completely different job and so um, you know I think that hustle and grit has looked very different every year but you know in terms of painting the picture those early days are definitely the ones that like look the craziest. <laughs> What's been the hardest point? Um, I think the hardest point has been, um, I mean, you know, anything that has to do with people is just incredibly hard. Um, it's, um, you know, making decisions when people aren't right. It's just, it, it doesn't really get easier, I think. Um, and, um, and, you know, you can, you can know that you're doing the right thing and still it can feel hard and be hard. Um, and similarly, I think, I mean, just anything that affects people. And so when we were, there was a point in the early days in probably 2012, I would get late 2012, where fundraising was just ridiculously difficult. Um, we, I'd spent a bunch of time with venture investors. Like we would get really far so along in the it process. Was hard for you too. It was yeah. so <laughs> hard. And it was like almost the worst of hard where it wasn't like you'd have one meeting and they'd say no. It was like we'd have three or four meetings and we'd go to the partnership and then and we did this like I can't even imagine how why many did you firms. get no's what did what did people say was wrong I mean one of my uh, one of the hard things I think with raising money is that like there's no incentive for a venture investor to be all that honest with you around you know mm-hmm. is this a like is this a hell no or is mm-hmm. this like a I was really almost there but I couldn't quite get there like it's they, they they're not going to be honest with you because if they make a mistake they want to have the option value later and um and, you know, I think it, it, you could get some feedback, but it wasn't always, you know, we got feedback like, oh, we just want to see more traction or we just, you know, we all of our growth was organic. Like people were just telling other people. So even though we wanted to spend marketing dollars, we couldn't. Mm-hmm. And people would say like, well, we just don't know how, you know, when you spend money in marketing, what is that going to look like? And it's like such a double-edged sword yeah. because I think if you were spending too much on marketing, they would say, well, this isn't organically growing. Right. And so, you know, and so the feedback was super hard, but it was just, you know, it was very, very hard to raise money. Do you think and, you pitched well in the beginning? Um, I don't know. Probably not based on <laughs> um, based on the results that we had. Um, I mean, I joke that like, you know, especially in Silicon Valley right now, like a lot of being a good entrepreneur is 
how good are you at raising money? Mm-hmm. And I was not good at raising money. I mean, we raised $43 million um, to build a business that's doing a billion dollars in revenue now. And that's not because, you know, people give me credit of like, oh, she built this super capital efficient thing. And, and that's all true. But it wasn't that I set out to say, like, I'm going to build a business with as little money as possible. Like, I tried really hard to raise more money and couldn't. Um, and so, you know, I there probably definitely was opportunity around how I pitched the idea and how I talked about it. Um, but um, I don't know. And there are a lot of other circumstances, too, where people hadn't seen a lot of success in e-commerce. I think people, um, you know, people didn't love that we carried inventory. Like, you'd be giving us venture dollars that we're literally spending to, we're using that cash to buy women's dresses. Like, venture investors don't love that. Um, and then, you know, this is a world where 96%, 94%, maybe it's 94%, 94% at the time of venture investors were men. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'd get feedback where they just were like, my heart's just not in the investment, mm-hmm. which, like, yeah, you know. Did it surprise you? Because you had worked in venture before. So when we started out, everyone said no, but we had nothing to benchmark it against. We were like, oh, this is just hard because we know nothing about this world and we're bad at this and we're 25 and have no clue what we're doing. So we had to learn a lot. But you had come from that world. Like, if did you know what you were getting into? Um, Probably not as much as I should have. Um, I was... I mean, what was I surprised? I was surprised, and but I was really more surprised, like, the rational financial part of me was surprised because, like, the math worked. Like, I, you know, I mm-hmm. build jokes about how the first time I met him, I had, like, um, like the three financial statements all linked in an Excel sheet. Like, I, I love Excel. I spend a lot of time in Excel. Like, the, the math worked. Like, it was a really good business, and it was working, and you could see a clear path to profitability. And um, just the rational side of me was frustrated about it because, um, you know, it's not as though – um, it's not as though our business suddenly got good. It wasn't like, oh, suddenly things are profitable. It was like things have been healthy all along, and for whatever reason, you know, we just couldn't get people super excited about it. What are you like as a manager? I mean, the things that I love about managing people, I think, are um, like one. I think it's been really rewarding to be able to see people grow and achieve milestones, and um, and you know, I think for me, it's rewarding to be able to. Um, like help people to do that. And so I think through that, I end up being, you know, probably a more empowering, more hands-off manager. Um, and a lot of that actually was really shaped by the fact that I hired all these people early on that were far smarter and far more talented than I was. And so, you know, when I have but that- how did you attract people like that? I mean, you mentioned that you got, uh, I think you said your COO mm-hmm. uh, from Walmart as your fifth employee. Um, like you, you didn't have anything then. Like, how, how did you attract talent of that level at such an early stage? Um, it's you know a lot of time, um, and I still spend a lot of time on recruiting. Um, but I had yeah, Mike joined at that time. Eric, who was running all of algorithms at Netflix, he joined at that time. You know, part of my approach was just like I wanted to meet. I didn't care if they were going to join the company or you know, be an advisor or just be somebody I could call. Like, I just wanted to meet the most amazing people that could be helpful to me. And so, like, um, I mean... Did you just do, like, cold emails to people? In some cases, cold emails. In some cases, like, when a venture investor would say no, for example, I would say, well, hey, I appreciate it. Because venture investors, I mean, you guys probably know this, but they'll always write, like, a very nice no. It's like... Yeah, it's like, hey, usually. (laughs) 
<laughs> they're like, oh, hey, like we love the concept. We think you guys are super talented. We really believe in the company. We just can't get there now, but would love to stay in touch or would love to be helpful. Sometimes they say that. And then I would write back and say like, oh, thanks so much for the offer to help. I see you're connected to these three or four people that I'd love to connect with if you'd feel comfortable like connecting me. And so, you know, I just was on a journey of meeting really smart, talented people. And both Mike and Eric were kind of in that bucket. And Mike was, I was lucky enough because he was just at a moment where he'd been, he'd spent many years at Walmart and he was looking for something totally new. And so it was kind of right time, right place. Um, and he'd been in retail and he was super intrigued by being on the ground floor of something that's just really different. Um, and Mike brought like we, on those crazy Mondays, like he came, I remember he asked like, oh, I'd love to come on a Monday and see how it works and I was like okay <laughs> I think this is a bad idea if he actually sees how this is wor- gonna work like he's probably not gonna want to come but I was like well I guess he needs to know and so <laughs> um, so he came and he brought his daughter and they both worked on the line with us and you know I think in some ways it, it made him more excited because I think he could see um, you know firstly the culture and how mm-hmm. we all work together but he could also see that like there's so much room for improvement. Like there's so much low hanging fruit in the way that we are doing things. Eric was a different story from Netflix. With Eric, I was like, I just want a meeting with him. And he very like kind of reluctantly took a meeting. And after one meeting, he was like, he's like, this is fascinating. Like this is what he's like at Netflix, you know, we if we thought we were really good at recommendations, like we wouldn't show you all our recommendations. When you opened up Netflix, we would just like start playing the movie you wanted to watch. And um, he's like, we would be that bold if we were really good at recommendations. And he loved, he's like, at Stitch Fix, like, that's what you're doing. Like, you're just like sending, you're just sending the recommendations and people are buying them. And so he loved the boldness of the model. Um, And so, but he was definitely not ready to leave Netflix. And so he, I was like, I'll take, you know, if you can give us half an hour, 90 minutes, whatever of your time you can give us. And so he was an advisor and he spent 90 minutes a month with us. And like, Mm -hmm. gradually we reeled him him in where he was like, um, you know, he'd spend 90 minutes and then he wanted um, he wanted a stitch fix email address so he could you know, see the business updates and then he wanted um, periodic data dump so that he could like play around with the data and then he wanted a stitch fix machine he was like I feel like I shouldn't be doing this on my Netflix machine in my spare time so can I have a stitch fix machine so I can play around with the data and then you know gradually he just got so interested in the data and so interested in the business that he actually wanted to join us um, and so you know I think all of those I think my the way that I've been able to hire people is just like really have you know cast a net for like the smartest people I could possibly imagine and then um, and then being excited to have them involved in any way and you know there are some people where I would send them emails and they would never write back or write back every once in a while and I'll still send them emails and you know just be shameless. (laughs) Uh, What's your worst management mistake? Um you know I think I don't know. I mean, I, I really think like the best and worst all fundamentally just comes down to the people decisions you make. Like the when we have 6,000 employees, the experience that people have of Stitch Fix is actually not mine. It's the people that are managing other people. And so, you know, I think, it, you know, when I started having a lens of like one of my jobs is to hire great managers who are going to create a great work experience, who are going to help develop people, um, and that, you know, that's the responsibility of people that are managers. Like, I think think that had a big shift in kind of the way that I thought about it because then all of a sudden like when you think about is somebody performing or not usually you're thinking about more of like the business of like are they delivering results or not and then when you think about like okay the the job of this person is to be able to is to create like a fulfilling work 
workplace environment to be able to um, you know, develop talent and to hire great people. And when you think of the manager more in that lens, then you know, I think the bar gets a little bit higher of what you're holding people accountable for. Um, and you know, I think maybe we, maybe I think it was not until later that I really held people accountable to that higher bar, but I think it makes a big difference. What was the day like when you rang the bell? Like, that was I my want. Question. I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure you've never gotten that before. Um, I want the full story of like, what'd you eat the night before? What'd you do that morning? Like, were you calm? Were you freaking out? What'd so, you do after? How, where do we even start? So, the whole roadshow, the whole IPO process was like a crazy up and down. Um, so going into the IPO, um, we this company is unique. Like we are in retail, we're in apparel retail, um, but you know this isn't a subscription business. Like this isn't a walk into a store business. Like there aren't a lot of great comparables out there. And so it was very hard to know kind of what the value of the business was gonna be. And then beyond that, I hadn't raised money since 2014. So I'm like totally out of practice. I haven't met with any investors. I'm trying to convince people in these 30 minute meetings on a roadshow to, invest in the business. So, um, you know, we had a range that we had originally set out to raise money in. And then um, as you're getting through the roadshow, like, like, you know, in these meetings, it's not going that great. Like it wasn't going terribly, but it wasn't going great. And so um, by the time, so the first week, like you, you don't feel like it's going great, but you don't really know. And then the second week, our range had been 18 to $20. The second week, we get to Tuesday or Wednesday. And I guess the bell ringing was Friday? Thursday or Friday? Your team's nodding. Friday. 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 It was Friday. And so um, it was Wednesday. We were in Denver. And this was the moment that we knew that it was we weren't going to be able to price where we thought we were going to price. So the 18 to 20 was off the table. And then now we're talking about like 15, which is where we went at. And you know, it was it was way lower than the expectations of what the team had. It was, um, you know, there's no reason it needed to be disappointing, but it just like it kind of was, I think, because we, um, you know, we just believed in the business too much and like we had higher expectations. And so, but the reality was, and I remember one of the bankers was like, you know, you can we can wait, like we can wait 18 months and try it again. And I'm like. I'm not trying yet. Like, (laughs) it's like at the end of the day, if we go low today, like we'll prove ourselves. We'll, you know, we've been underestimated before. Like it felt like the right story. But anyway, the point is that Wednesday night, it was my CFO, my COO and me. And we had to like call the management team to like tell them we were going to price low. And so we were like in Denver in like a hotel room. We like open up the mini bar, <laughs> take all the mini bottles of wine out. <laughs> and, like there were only, I don't even think they had wine glasses. We had coffee cups and we're like pouring these like single serving <laughs> wines into coffee cups, like getting ready to call the management team um, to break this horror, like, you know, kind of very disappointing news to them. Um, and so we call them and we kind of explain how it's been going and, you know, that we're probably going to price at 15. Um, and it was, I mean, it was, you know, we were all just like sad and um but the management team was great and i think everybody just had this attitude that was it's so much of what our story had been Mm -hmm. like we had been eight weeks away from not making payroll like we it was hard for us to raise money every single time and this is just another 
fundraising event. And so, you know, I think if anything, it just motivated us. And like it was, I think we were just worried the management team would be so disappointed and we're bearing this bad news. And I think the management team ended up being this amazing support system where they were like, you know, it's okay, we got this. Like, we're going to show that we are worth more. We're going to be able to prove to the market. Like, we've done this before. We've been underestimated before. And so it ended up being this like great motivational kind of moment where we are like, you know, that's fine. You can put a $15 clearance sticker on us today, but like, you know, we're going to show, we're going to show what we can do. And so, and it also set the stage for Friday because I think it really, like, it gave me more of this attitude that was kind of like, screw it, like, Mm -hmm. we're going to do this our way. And, um, you know, it gave me, I think, more of an empowered attitude to kind of, like, do whatever I would want to do in the way that I would want to do it. And so on the day of the IPO, I think, you know, A, even though we were pricing in a place that, you know, we we weren't thrilled with, candidly, um, we, it ended up, um, like, there's nothing you could do to make that day not exciting. Did you, I mean, like, so you get off the, the day as, like, you go to the bathroom, you see yourself in the mirror. Were you just, like, Oh my God! I just fucking IPO. <laughs> and they're like, like I'm the only one in this bathroom that has. <laughs> like, um, I mean, the day of, like, I don't know that there, it, there was not really any time to think about it that way. But like, you know, the night before, you definitely like have a little bit of a moment. Like, I actually can't even remember what I ate or what I did the night before, <laughs> honestly. But like, the morning of, you get up really early. I had my son and my husband there with me, and um, you know, you, you get up early, you're getting ready, and like the whole thing is like, it's almost like a wedding. Like you are in. A specific time at a specific place doing taking a specific picture or whatever every step of the way um but the part that i think that like kind of screwed attitude helped was that like when we so there's remarks that i give to the whole company so like a lot of people we had a lot of people who were there with us in new york but we also had lots of employees in san francisco and austin and elsewhere and so um we so there were remarks that i gave to the whole company that went by video and so for those i was like holding my son and i was going to put him down but he was being so cute and so easy so i was like i'm just going to keep him for this and so i did my remarks holding my son and um and then when we were going on to ring the bell like there the shot list is like it's supposed to be like you do it with the company and then you do it with your family mm-hmm. and there's like a different shot list and I was like screw it like he's gonna stay up here with me <laughs> for the bell ringing part also and so you know I think it really helped us to be able to feel like this is our day we're gonna do it our way and like you know you don't care if the outside world thinks this is disappointing or not disappointing and I think you know it was a great milestone and a great event and you know and for us importantly it was really a beginning where we felt like um, you know, we have a we have to prove ourselves now, and we have to show that we can do this. We've got a wrap. I know. So, I could talk to you forever. Um, all right, our last question: What's the worst piece of advice you've ever gotten? Um, I think I I don't even know that this is necessarily advice, but you know, I think there's this like notion in our generation that's like this follow your dreams and like your job should be your dream job and like a lot of people will look at my job and be like that's a dream job and like so many parts of this job have not been a dream Mm -hmm. and you know I used to joke that I'm like CEO slash janitor like you know like there were early days where it was like 
you know, if someone needed to go buy more toilet paper or someone needed to go buy more toner cartridges, like that was me. And, you know, I think that translates in an entrepreneurship journey, but I think it also translates in like a day-to-day job where I think a lot of people find themselves like unhappy in their jobs and because like it's not their dream. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, if you're learning and if you're working with great people, then it's to be able to have, you know, like that's going to be a rewarding experience because I think I just see a lot of people that I think are really you know, kind of unnecessarily unhappy and having a crazy expectation of just that every single moment of their job every day is going to be like an amazing moment. And, um, you know, I think even in in my job, that's not true. I think in many people who love their jobs, it's not true. And so, you know, I think I, I would love to, I don't know, to see people frame, you know, what do you love in a job is, is, maybe a more simple set of things of just Mm -hmm. like if you feel like you're learning and you're growing and you feel like you work with people that you love working with like that's an amazing job um and so i think you know that that high bar is one that yeah yeah, i think is ending up being a disservice to people couldn't agree more uh katrina thank you for everything um and congratulations thank you thank Thank you you for having me thanks for hanging out with us join us next week for another episode of skim from the couch And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.